break 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 You're listening to Breakthrough News, and this is The Punch-Out. We're following the news all day so you don't have to, giving you everything you need to know about what's in the headlines and what should be. And yes, we are back here on The Punch-Out, 26th of August, 2021. Very happy to be back with you here on the show. Plenty for you here on the show, as we always do. We're going to be talking about the conflict in the Sahelian region of Africa, which is grinding on. We're going to talk about an anniversary many people aren't discussing this week. That's the 30th anniversary of the collapse of the Soviet Union. But before we get to either of those two very important stories, we want to talk about the Delta variant and how it actually seems to be driving an uptick in vaccinations. Well, for anyone who wants to see it, it's clear that the Delta variant is seriously stoking the flames of the COVID-19 pandemic. Today, hospitalizations have reached 100,000 people for the first time since January. In Florida, more people are catching the coronavirus, being hospitalized for the coronavirus, and dying of COVID-19 now than at any point previously in the pandemic. The surge in Florida is so significant, the mayor of Orlando called on residents to use less water in order to avoid disrupting the city's supply of liquid oxygen needed for the critical patients coming in. Hawaii is also experiencing a significant surge, with models predicting a true crisis in coming weeks. As the New York Times reports, quote, models show that the state could reach a daily average of 1,500 COVID hospitalizations by the end of September, said Hilton Raythel, president of the Healthcare Association of Hawaii. The state normally maintains just 2,000 staffed hospital beds across the islands. One element of the Delta variant surge, which I guess could be considered a very slight silver lining, is that the seriousness of the issue is driving more people to get vaccinated, lifting the seemingly stalled U.S. vaccination campaign. The head of Arkansas's vaccination effort told The Times bluntly, quote, the reason why we've seen the marked increase in demand is fear. It's the Delta variant. The Times also noted about the data on this that, quote, the increase in vaccinations has been especially pronounced in states where immunization levels were and remain below the national average of 61%. Mississippi, Alabama, and Louisiana, some of the hardest-hit states by the Delta variant, have seen some of the biggest jumps, seeing increases of 11, 12, and 12 percentage points, respectively there, since June 6th. Arkansas and Florida have also seen 12 percentage point increases since the start of June, and six other states have seen at least a 10 percentage point increase, including California, by the way. There is a lot of discussion about the issue of vaccine hesitancy and so on, who is and isn't for the vaccines or getting them. Honestly, I think it's fairly difficult to generalize this question. But since people are generalizing the question, I do want to draw your attention to the Kaiser Family Foundation's tracking poll that is on an ongoing basis surveying people about a variety of issues on vaccines and is probably the most comprehensive regular study conducted in the country about how people feel regarding vaccines and other issues surrounding the COVID-19 pandemic. 
Now, it's worth noting here that in this KFF tracking poll, 65% of black respondents are vaccinated, and just 16% said that they would definitely not get it. 15% of white people also said they would definitely not get it. They also asked if people would be more likely to get vaccinated if the vaccines had FDA approval. And of the unvaccinated black respondents, 41% said they would indeed be more likely. Now, I raise this point mainly to raise the issue of avoiding the act of essentializing who is or who isn't getting the vaccine as if somehow that relates to whether or not the vaccine is or is not an effective public health tool. There are many valid reasons why some people may be hesitant, from the history of the U.S. government experimenting on black people to the fear that without a paid day off, the side effects of a second dose could cost you lost wages or even a lost job. But all that being said, the bottom line is clear. Vaccines are the most effective way to curb the virus, and you are far more likely to die if you do not get the vaccine. In Alabama, you are 48 times more likely to die if you get COVID-19 and are unvaccinated. In Alabama, three people per 100,000 people are dying who are vaccinated versus 124 for the unvaccinated. In California, you are 58 times more likely to die if you get COVID-19 and are unvaccinated. In Arizona, you are 73 times more likely to die if you get COVID-19 and are unvaccinated. In Georgia, you are 87 times more likely to die if you get COVID-19 and are unvaccinated. In Texas, you are 85 times more likely to die if you get COVID-19 and are unvaccinated. Again, if you do not get the vaccine in every state in the United States, you are significantly more likely to die if you get COVID-19, which is spreading faster than ever and is more virulent than it has ever been because of the Delta variant. I understand that there are many people who don't want to trust and believe the U.S. government, don't want to trust and believe big Western pharmaceutical companies. I get that. I really do. But it's important for you to know that the issue of vaccines being the best way to curb the virus, the importance of wearing masks and the efficacy of lockdowns, social distancing, and mandates around these things are not a U.S. government or a big pharma invention. The leadership of countries as diverse as China, Venezuela, Vietnam, Cuba, many, many others. In fact, just about every single government on earth in fact, agree with these propositions and are promoting them among their own populations. Venezuela, for instance, has not gotten anywhere near the credit they should have for their comparative statistics as it concerns Latin America. They've been taking the pandemic very seriously, and the president there, Nicolas Maduro, has conducted almost daily press conferences throughout the pandemic from the very beginning, stressing the importance of social distancing, the wearing of masks, explaining why the country is using stringent lockdown measures, and promoting the usage of vaccines. Venezuela has had 3,940 total deaths from COVID-19. That's 14 per 100,000. Their neighbor, Colombia, has had 124,474 deaths, or 247 per 100,000. Peru has had 609 deaths per 100,000. Brazil, 273. Argentina, 247. Mexico, 200. Chile, 194. Paraguay, 222. Uruguay, 174. 
So it seems pretty clear that Venezuela is far and away one of the leaders, perhaps the leading country in Latin America on dealing with COVID-19. And again, they've relied on all of the proven public health measures extensively from lockdowns to vaccines. There are indeed various possible side effects and risks of being vaccinated, just like any and all medicines. It is, however, not quite correct to say that the vaccines are experimental. They are building on roughly two decades of research involving other serious coronaviruses like SARS and MERS. While mRNA vaccines like Moderna are a new form of biotechnology, it's worth noting that just yesterday, the Chinese newspaper The Global Times noted that a Chinese mRNA vaccine based on the Pfizer vaccine is likely to soon be approved. And you may remember that China was originally raising some questions about whether mRNA vaccines were the most effective, although they did not say that they were unsafe. But now they, too, are about to approve and use a vaccine that is not only based on the Pfizer vaccine, but is jointly developed by BioNTech, the German company, and Fosun Pharmaceuticals, a Chinese company. So again, just like with literally every approved medicine on Earth, there are potential side effects and complications. The same is true of widely accepted medicines and treatment, from birth control to chemotherapy. It doesn't mean that we should not know, study, and take seriously what these side effects are and what the complications could be when we consider the vaccine. But the reality is they do not, and no one is producing any studies that speak to any of these issues claiming that the vaccine is unsafe from the point of view of accepted medical practice in every part of the world. We're all tired. COVID fatigue is real. If we want to try to get back to normal, there's only one real chance. You have to get vaccinated. I'm personally urging you to do so and talk to anyone you know who is not and make sure they have the real facts, not the cherry-picked data and articles that are often presented as reasons not to be vaccinated. This week is the 30th anniversary of a momentous event that most people aren't thinking much about, the collapse of the Soviet Union. For Americans especially, this seems truly remote since all you ever hear about the USSR is, well, it was bad. It was the evil empire, the worst place on earth. It's the perfect symbol of why communism is a failed ideology. One thing for Americans to reflect on is why Nelson Mandela, who's so revered in the U.S. public sphere these days, always lauded and praised the USSR if it was so bad. Well, the reality is, is most of what you've been told about the Soviets is either massively distorted or an outright lie or at the very least, massively decontextualized. Mandela's feelings aren't that hard to parse here. The U.S. and the West supported apartheid. The USSR was the bulwark against apartheid. The Eastern Bloc countries were the only staunch supporters of the struggle to liberate Africa. The record is 100% clear and unimpeachable on that front. Only the Soviets and their allies were willing to arm the freedom fighters taking on apartheid and the neo-apartheid of neocolonialism, while the U.S. government gave their guns and weapons to the racists. You may be more surprised to hear that in 2019, according to a poll by the Levada Center, that's the only polling agency in Russia Western sources consider to be quote-unquote independent, 75% of Russian people said that the Soviet era was, quote, the best time in their country's history. In another poll by the same pollster in the same year, 59% said the Soviet state, quote, took care of ordinary people. A 2013 Gallup poll asked people in former Soviet republics if the fall of the USSR hurt or harmed their countries. 61% of people in Kyrgyzstan, 66% of people in Armenia, 56% of people in Ukraine, 52% of people in Tajikistan all said that the fall of the Soviet Union harmed rather than helped their countries. 
In fact, only in Turkmenistan did over 50% of people say that it helps their country. Which comports with a 1991 referendum in the USR you've probably never heard about, where 78% of the 147 million voters, 80% of the electorate, stated that they did not want to dissolve the Soviet Union. Did not. Something that, of course, was promptly ignored by a handful of elites, including Boris Yeltsin, who pushed forward with the total dissolution of the Soviet Union. And the experience of many of the former Soviet republics with capitalism undoubtedly also explains much of the recent polling. Living conditions plummeted in most of them. In Russia, life expectancy dropped from 65 to 57 in just the first four years after the collapse. There's a lot to be said about the Soviet Union, much more than we can get into here, important gains and also challenges and defects. But it seems what is most important now, 30 years later, is to reset the debate, to discard the whole evil empire concept, to embrace here in this country, the United States, what the people actually living in the former Soviet Union do, that whatever its defects, it had many positive things as well, policies and programs we can all still learn from. We're right in the midst of an attempt to start a new Cold War with China, the elites in the U.S. are in overdrive trying to get it off the ground. If we don't want to make the same mistakes as the last Cold War, it starts with the reality-based consideration of what the USSR was and what it meant to the world. Sixteen soldiers have been killed and nine wounded in Niger in an attack yesterday by hundreds of fighters affiliated with Boko Haram, according to government officials. The attack comes as the fighting in the Sahel region of Africa continues at a fast clip, one of the most volatile but least discussed regions in the world. And this attack comes after dozens were killed in a village in Niger last week, although no one has claimed that raid, as many as 37 people killed, it seems. And there was also a brazen raid earlier this week on Nigeria's military academy, yes, their version of West Point, where two officers were killed and a third was kidnapped. The Sahel region of Western Africa is truly one of the tender boxes of the world. The region is beset by a range of problems. One major one is environmental. The impact of climate change is increased desertification, intensifying struggles over land and water between those who grow crops and those who tend cattle. And all sorts of things from religion to ethnicity are deeply tied up in that underlying dispute. Another major issue is poverty. The Sahelian countries, Nigeria, Mali, Niger, Chad, and Burkina Faso are some of the countries considered the poorest on earth. Niger, in fact, is considered the poorest country on earth. However, this is a misleading statement because all these countries are very rich in mineral resources. But their governments, run by elites, hand over most of the wealth to Western multinationals and keep most of what's left for themselves, which means these countries in general, and in particular in their Sahelian regions, have very little to no access to public services and face very high levels of unemployment and a serious lack of infrastructure that makes the smallhold agriculture that most people are engaged in a survival strategy, not something that can create resources in any significant way. Which leads to the third problem, and that's imperialism. The West actually loves these governments that promote poverty because they enrich the elites in the West. And thus they spend large sums of money bulking up the military and police in these places under the guise of counterterrorism. But what ends up happening and what actually led to a coup in Mali last year is that these armed forces become extremely repressive and often rival or exceed the so-called rebels in terms of serious war crimes, which increases the violence as people join various insurgent forces to fight back. So ultimately, the Sahel remains trapped in a cycle of violence that is mainly a result of the fact that these countries have resources more powerful countries want. And because of that, 
can't truly make their own way out because of the excessive meddling that goes on in their internal politics, where the military might of the U.S., France, Germany, and now increasingly Italy places a very heavy thumb on the scale to determine the outcomes. The recent violence portends something quite serious. Under the guise of fighting ISIS, Italy and the United States are actually increasing Western military capacity to intervene in Africa in general, and in particular in the Sahel, more than filling the void left by a limited pullback of French military forces. Italy recently held a massive conference designed to structure a new coalition of Western and African government forces to intervene across the whole continent. And the U.S. trickily merged its African command with its European one to increase the number of troops it can deploy to the continent, while appearing to actually be pulling back troops. And the subtext of every conversation in the EU about the need for more military capacity to be less dependent on the U.S. is that EU countries expect to have to intervene more in Africa in the coming century. When you add it all up, it's a dangerous picture, and it shows that Africa is poised to become the major battleground of the 21st century, a battle really over whether or not neocolonialism will remain the order of the day on the continent. That's the punch out for today. We're with you Monday through Friday, 5 p.m. here in New York, East Coast Standard Time, 2 p.m. in Los Angeles, Pacific Standard Time, and 9 p.m. GMT. And of course, you can support everything we do here at Breakthrough News at patreon.com slash breakthrough news. It's your patronage that keeps all of our offerings here at Breakthrough News moving forward. And of course, you can check us out across all your social media platforms, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, at BT Newsroom. 